Welcome to the Roboticist Chronicles, an ARC Specialties podcast, where we get into the nuts and bolts of robots, automation, and the implications of an evolving machine workforce. Hey everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Roboticist Chronicles by ARC Specialties. I'm your host today, Tyler Kern. I'm excited about this episode because, as always, we have Dan Alford, the president of ARC Specialties, on with us. But today we're welcoming in a special guest. His name is Dr. Peter Loos. He's a professor in the practice of material science and nanoengineering at Rice University. And today's conversation is going to center around how he's trying to teach engineering students to fill that gap that exists between higher education and actually working as an engineer in the field. So he's going to explain a lot of what that looks like and also how he's worked with Dan over the years on a lot of projects for his students that really helps give them that hands-on experience to help them learn uh, the basics of being an engineer in the real world. And so we're going to talk a lot about that, talk about some fun projects they've done. We'll talk a little bit about surgeries, uh, new knee replacements, uh, different things like that. So a lot of fun stuff coming up on the show today. So coming up next, we're going to be talking to Dr. Peter Loos and Dan Alford from Arc Specialties. So Dr. Loos, uh, tell us about the work you're doing uh, in your role as a professor in practice at Rice University. Just kind of tell us what that entails and what exactly it means to be a, a professor in practice. So um, for most of my career, I've been a practicing engineer uh, in a number of different companies. And uh, most recently was in the uh, titanium aerospace business when my old boss at Rice called me up, uh, associate chair of the department called me up, asked me, would I please come back? (laughs) The the department had split up mechanical engineering and material science used to be all one big happy family. We split up, uh, must have been about seven years ago. And he asked me if I'd come back and take over the uh, senior capstone project course. Uh, This is a critical part of the curriculum where the students are supposed to apply all kinds of useful skills that they've learned in the previous uh, three years. And uh, it's supposed to be real engineering. You know, this is not a fake made up academic, theoretical, uh, uneconomic kind of uh, uh, projects. It's supposed to be good engineering. And so that's my, my main role there is uh, keep the uh, seniors on track on a, on a good engineering project. So it seems like your role really bridges that gap between the, maybe the, the knowledge that you gain, you know, in your mind from, from being in a university to what you can actually do with your hands when you're in the field and you've graduated and you have a career, right? So you're kind of, you're bridging that gap a little bit, making sure that you don't immediately go from theoretical into the real world and have no kind of practical experience. Right. And, and that's sort of the, um, uh, the feeling that a lot of employers have had about Rice students for a long time is, you know, oh, those kids are fairly smart and I mean, they got no practical skills whatsoever. And so there's a, there's been long training programs and a lot of, a lot of employers would like to see some people show up for work with useful skills, ready to go. So that's what I do. Try and try and give them some skills. So Dan, you're a guy that, that likes to hire smart people, but, but you want people that are going to be able to get the job done, right? So you see this as a valuable, uh, kind of step in the process that Dr. Lois is helping fill, uh, for university students, right? Yeah, this is a wonderful system for me. It's kind of like a farm league. Uh, plus, we get to try them before we buy them because we get to know these kids pretty well. <laughs> it's a triple A during the yeah, during the whole process, and uh, and the whole point of these these projects is to try to learn something, and, and frequently we do. You know, we've done a couple of projects with Rice and, and some of the other schools too, and I think everybody benefits. 
What are uh, for both of you? What are some of the favorite projects that you've worked on? Well, there, there's been a lot of them over the years. <laughs> um, going back to the old days of mechanical engineering, we used to fly airplanes, design and build and fly airplanes in a competition sponsored by the uh, Professional Society. And that was always a lot of fun. It was uh, also uh, really expensive. I can to imagine. Go, to go uh, halfway across the country, uh, haul a team of 10 mechanical engineers and, and go do those competitions. And so we don't do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> we had a fun project recently that actually Tyler, you would appreciate because we were using electric guitar technology. So we had the kids from UT Austin uh, try to design a system which would detect when animals broke through fences. Uh, so, you know, right now you, you put a cowboy on a horse and he goes and rides the fence line. Well, we're looking for, you know, an alternative. Mm -hmm. And so by monitoring the vibrations that would occur on the steel wire of the fence, you could determine whether uh, the wind was blowing or animals were stomping around the fence or animals were bumping into the fence or animals had pushed all the way through the fence. And the kids were able to characterize these different signals using electric guitar pickups, uh, which are uh, variable reluctant sensors in reality. And it, it worked pretty well to, you know, like many of these projects didn't quite become a commercialized project, but uh, everybody learned a bunch, had to wire some stuff, had, had to build some things, had to test in the field, had to do data collection. And, you know, as, as the doctor says, that's the point of the exercise is mm. some tangible real world results under real world conditions. I used to have a guitar pickup sitting on my windowsill behind me, but my wife made me clean my room recently, so I put it somewhere, and now I have no idea where it is. But that's that's really really fascinating. Uh, just so, using so something Dan, like could that. you uh, do like a Fourier transform, uh, spectral analysis, and determine wind speed and stuff like that? You're you're exactly right. They were doing fast Fourier transform analysis and to differentiate between impact and failure because they looked fairly similar. And so, uh, for example, we had to make some synthetic antlers out of aluminum, and then one of the kids beat on the fence in real time, <laughs> and we used aluminum antlers rather than real antlers because that allowed us to get a signal of continuity at the same time so we could correlate that with the impact. It was a lot of fun. That's pretty cool. That is that is really cool. I. I think projects like that are really interesting and like you, both of you mentioned, extremely valuable just in giving that real world experience, real world application of, you know, doing something with your hands, right? And, and actually having that hands-on education. It sounds like it's it's something that's really valuable to do, Dr. Lose, just making sure that students have that, um, have that type of experience of uh, having that hands-on education before they graduate because that is something that's valuable out there in the job market. Sure. The, um, you know, so much of the, uh, college experience is sitting in a chair with a pencil and paper, you know, and calculating things. And, uh, you know, that's not the main part of engineering. Right. Right. And, and I know that you have, uh, you have a motto, I think it's FOSS, right? Fail often, succeed sooner. So how do you kind of use this, the, the hands-on method of, of teaching students and allowing them to, to try things and get things wrong? How do you use that to help educate them on what life is like once you're actually an engineer in the real world? Yeah, I'm, and so I'm not sure I really use FOSS, but it, it's certainly something that happens in real life. When you least expect it, you know, something will go wrong. A lot of students uh, have an aversion to uh, doing anything that's even slightly risky. You know, um, they, uh, 
they have their comfort zone. A lot of, a lot of times that does not involve any kind of hand tools or, or power driven tools or anything. It involves a keyboard and a piece of software they bought. And so we, we need to get them out of that comfort zone, uh, lay hands on some mechanical devices and um, electrical devices and materials, process the materials, test the materials. And in the process of doing so frequently, the failures occur, you know, that doesn't work out as it was planned. Yeah, we've got a great example on the project I'm, I'm working with the doctor on right now where, uh, you know, we're trying to develop some titanium based orthopedic implants. But in order to test these parts, uh, we built uh, the school a testing machine and then handed it over to the school. And then one of the students uh, didn't quite understand the function of it and uh, almost burnt it up. And uh, but I think that was a wonderful example because they learned about closed loop control or the lack thereof. And they learned about the implications of uh, not reading a manual, and uh, and no, you know, no one was injured in the process, and a great deal of learning occurred. Right, they got a whole lecture about uh, um, proportional integral derivative control loops. There at that point, you know, it wasn't part of the plan, and that's how it goes. Uh, we set out uh, uh, with a plan to go out and learn something, do certain experiments, and determine certain parameters and whatnot. And uh, frequently we deviate from the plan in, in ways like that. We learn things that we didn't set out to learn. <laughs> but sometimes that's just, the, the, that's the best uh, lesson to actually learn is, uh, is the stuff that you just kind of pick up along the way and then make mistakes and realize, all right, I'm not going to do that again. And, and things along those lines. So, but I, I do want to hear more about this orthopedics project because it sounds incredibly interesting. And while I hope I never have to, uh, have to be the beneficiary of it. Uh, it, it does sound like something that's really interesting. So Dr. Lewis, kind of talk to me about what you and Dan are working on right now. So it's a, a knee replacement prosthesis. And I happen to have some uh, parts here I'd like to show everybody. Um, the upper part here is not a real femur bone. This is a plastic replica of a femur. All right. <laughs> and so uh, there in, the, uh, in uh, surgery, um, the surgeon would get out the scalpel and the bone saw and cut off the bad end of the femur here and replace it with a uh, piece of metal, which looks a lot like this. Um, it's uh, got a fair amount of strength and it's very smooth, uh, wear resistant, corrosion resistant piece of metal. And those are held together with bone cement and screws and whatnot. And so this is the upper part of the leg. And uh, then the uh, lower part of the leg uh, starts out with the polyethylene surface, which mates up with the metal and they rub against each other. So there's the, the motion of the knee. Y'all can see that on the screen there. And so it's uh, metal against polyethyl polyethylene. And it's a particular kind of polyethylene, ultra high molecular weight. Um, this was uh, a, a Nobel prize winning patent Germ from a uh, given to a German guy must have been about 50 years ago, and uh, it's some really good plastic material anyway. Um, and then that um, polyethylene specimen sits on another piece of metal, uh, and this this part goes into the lower leg. Uh, you can see here a, a ex example, um, and I don't have the lower leg bone, but the uh, Assembly. I get you one of those. Assembly <laughs> is about like this, and if people walk and back and forth it goes. So there's a certain amount of travel 
each time a person takes a step, um, there's a considerable amount of force on this knee joint. The, uh, these parts exist in human body fluid, uh, synovial fluid. It's uh, got a considerable amount of chlorine in it, uh, which makes it rather corrosive. And so we have a combination of corrosion and wear going on at the same time. And it's a difficult problem to face. A lot of materials just can't tolerate the combination of corrosion and wear. And so the current material, this, this metal piece is an alloy of cobalt, chrome, and molybdenum. Um, it's really dense. If you could hold it in your hand, uh, this, this is surprisingly dense material, far more dense than bone. And for that reason, it's not all that desirable. Um, secondly, uh, this metal piece is extremely rigid. It's uh, elastic stiffness, uh, many times greater than bone. And so again, that, that combination is not so great. So what we'd really like is a piece of material that's lighter in weight, you know, lower density, and uh, not so stiff so it can flex as the bone flexes. And so the current project was to replace cobalt chrome moly with something along those lines and our best uh, guess uh, would be a, a titanium alloy uh, with a certain crystal structure that makes it fairly low density. Of course, the titanium alloys are used uh, frequently in airplanes because of their good combination of strength and weight, you know, fairly high strength, fairly low weight. Same applies here, need, need fairly high strength, fairly low weight. In uh, the airplane application, there's a, actually a surprising amount of corrosion can go on uh, in that, that application. So here, here again, uh, titanium alloys are fairly corrosion resistant. And so that's the main focus of this project is to improve the metal side. The uh, polyethylene, we, we haven't worked on that so much. This is a, a fairly pure material. Rather than work with these complicated shapes, which you see here in the materials engineering side of things, uh, we replace the complicated shapes by much simpler ones. The uh, metal part becomes a, a simple little rectangular block which looks about like this, half inch by one inch by two inches. And then the polyethylene part here becomes a little cylindrical pin. And in the uh, wear, wear tester, which Dan and his folks built, the um, polyethylene pin just slides back and forth across the top of the metal block. And so ordinarily, um, titanium alloys are not particularly wear resistant. And so we uh, try to make the surface of it somewhat harder and uh, smoother and so that it gives good wear resistance. And this is a big project. There's all kinds of things going on here at once. Uh, certainly there's a need for this, you know, outside of academia. This, is, this has real consequences. So you're talking about wear resistance. So in addition to wanting something less dense and lighter in general, you also want something that's going to last a long time, right? Because you don't want to yes. have to go back in there and, and, and do this all over again. Right. Nobody wants to get their knee sliced open a second time to replace a bad prosthesis. And, and unfortunately, that happens all too often. You know, these things do wear out. Uh, I guess the uh, typical lifetime is something like 10 years. And... Uh, really needs to be twice that or more. So Dan, from your perspective, kind of talk us through this project and, and some of the things that, that you've done with it and, and what you've enjoyed when it comes to uh, to working on uh, on orthopedics and, and talking about new knees. 
Well, this whole thing's a spinoff from our robotic surgery. And I think that's our next podcast next week, I believe, with with uh, with the doctor, the other doctor, the medical doctor. <laughs> and and so working with him, uh, you know, we saw a need for something better than the cobalt chrome materials, because even if even if you can tolerate the wear, all those wear particles that are created, you don't want them floating about in your body. You know, so uh, it's it's more than just a replacement issue. You're, you're trying to avoid having these particles move about. And so Dr. Lose and I, uh, you know, are, are familiar with titanium. It's biocompatible, has a, this modulus elasticity is closer, a lot of good things, but it's too soft. And, but uh, Peter and I've worked on surface coatings for a long time. And so that, that was what was intriguing was whether we could take something that's relatively soft and then make it into a bearing surface. And the reason I believe that it will work is we had another project uh, several years ago where uh, they wanted to make titanium bulletproof. And so titanium doesn't stop bullets very well. And yet they wanted to up armor some uh, vehicles, some military vehicles with titanium. And so we had to develop a, a coating for that. We used uh, boron and, and boron is biocompatible also. And so if it stops bullets, I think it ought to last as a knee. And then you have a bulletproof knee. Just in case. Just in case. Just in case. Might uh, you know, you might set off some uh, some metal detectors at the airport, but uh, but at least it's bulletproof at that point, which is pretty cool. Uh, so how did you guys first start working together? I think that I, I want to hear the the Alford uh, Los uh, origin story of how you guys kind of first met and started working together and what those projects looked like. Wow, that was uh, back in the 1970s, I guess. Um, the uh, company was Hughes Tool Company, that is Howard Hughes, you know, the reclusive billionaire uh, who is famous in movies and, and whatnot, and uh, avi the Aviator uh, movie. And so we both were uh, working at the Hughes Tool Company on Polk Street in the research lab and met back then. It was a great time for me. It was my first job. I don't know if it was yours, Peter. But Same, yeah. First job out of school. And they had such a group of smart people. I met so many good people, you know, and, and here's an example. I'm still associating with, with Dr. Lose all these years, but uh, the rock bed industry is a whole lot of fun because you're selling a part, which is maybe 70 pounds worth of steel and uh, steel, what typically costs less than a dollar a pound. And yet we were getting... $5,000 apart. There's a whole lot of technology that goes into a rock bit and that's where all the profit comes from. So that all that technology is right there in, in the research laboratory and we're doing surface coatings with boron, much like what we're doing now. And uh, it, was, it was a whole lot of fun. And one funny thing, if you recall the Glomar Explorer, when uh, Howard Hughes was enlisted by the CIA to recover the Russian submarine off the Pacific coast, and they use drill rig technology to do that, but they had to have a cover story for what they're doing. So they pretended like they were actually collecting manganese nodules off the ocean floor. And I don't know if you remember, Peter, but there were manganese nodules laying all over the place because they went so far to cover the story that they had shipped the manganese nodules into the Hughes laboratory and had the metallurgists try to figure out a way to economically uh, refine the manganese. Of course, there wasn't one, so I'm, I'm sure that was very frustrating for them. That's a that's a fantastic story, and, and what a what a way to meet and under under you know crazy circumstances and that sort of thing. But I, I know you all, guys have also done some work in in oil and gas too, right? Working with um, trying to uh, find ways to uh, 
Well, that's for the sour gas. Yes, yes, the sour gas. That's that's the word I was looking for. I couldn't come up with sour for some reason. What was what was that process like? What did you guys do in in that in that regard? Well, I got to give you the backstory, and that's another doctor we're going to have on, Doctor Charlie Ribardo, and, and his quote is: "All the oil that's left in the earth is so deep beneath the surface that the pressures and temperatures are so high down at those depths that the threshold for what is considered sour versus sweet crude is now below detectable limits." So. At his company, they assume all oil is sour. And the implication of that is if that oil touches steel, the hydrogen sulfide combines with the iron, forms iron sulfide, free hydrogen, the hydrogen migrates into the crystalline structure of the steel, cracks spontaneously under no load and catastrophically. And uh, so you can't have that. So that means we have to come up with something other than steel for pipe. And uh, we, we have some high, high nickel alloys in industry but we're pushing the envelope on the ultra high pressure, high temperature wells now. And even the materials that we're running nowadays don't have sufficient strength. And so we went to Dr. Lowe's to uh, see if some of his students could develop the next generation uh, super nickel alloy. So that was a project two years ago, the super alloy development project, uh, another challenging one. What made, it, uh, what made it challenging and what made it interesting? Well, first was to uh, make materials. Uh, you know, how do you take some uh, powdered molybdenum and uh, infuse it into a solid block of nickel alloy? You know, you got to melt the stuff. Okay, how, what temperature does that take? Well, it's thousands, a few thousand degrees. How do we do that? You know, do we have a furnace? No, no, we don't. Uh, we don't have those capabilities on campus at all. <laughs> So then uh, is that when you roped in Dan and, and you guys kind of worked together on this? Kind of uh, talk, talk me through how you, how you solved yes. the problem. So, so the, to make the stuff, uh, Dan has a, a, a ray of uh, robotic welders over there at his facility. And with pow uh, powder feeders and the powdered materials are fed in, through a tube into a plasma arc. And they're melted there in the arc in a fraction of a second, deposited straight onto a substrate. And that was fantastic. That's awesome. And the second well, problem is, so you've, you've made this stuff. Uh, you know, this is some of the most indestructible material that uh, humans can produce. And so how do you take that uh, nearly indestructible block of material and turn it into little uh, test specimens where we can uh, do mechanical tests and corrosion tests and whatnot? And you know, just sawing it up is a real challenge. So how'd you solve that problem, Dan? Did you uh, did you have a, a fix for that? No, that, that's not my problem. <laughs> I, we, we help him with uh, the alloy development, but uh, Peter's you did use your hacksaw. You had a, a big uh, automatic oh, hacksaw okay. over there. It worked pretty good. Oh, okay, okay. Maybe we did saw him up, but that was but, stage one. Peter's too polite. They had a really clever way of doing this. Uh, they were able to mathematically project material properties of alloys that have never existed. I don't know how they do this. It looks like alchemy to me. It, it was a, a very narrow case. You know, it was uh, strictly nickel alloys, right? And uh, it was a single phase material that it was the, it was the uh, face center cubic structure. And all of the alloys we were working with were going into solid solution. They didn't make precipitates and so this simplifies the thing a lot. Um, there's only one strengthening mechanism at work of, of the five that are possible. And so we had a sizable database of materials there uh, from 
the uh, commercially available materials, you know, all the manufacturers publish their composition and their material properties. And so we uh, rounded up all those data that we could and used that as a database and uh, did a little bit of interpolation and extrapolation to try and uh, predict ahead of time what uh, chemicals added to the alloy would strengthen it mm. um, best. Uh, and I think that worked out okay. That's that's really interesting, and I mean, it sounds like borderline magic to me, honestly. Uh, but <laughs> uh, it's not that bad. <laughs> um, uh, to me, to me, that sounds incredible. So, uh, Dan, you bring in a, a lot of students and let them kind of shadow around uh, what you do at Arc Specialties, right? Kind of talk me through that process. What's that like, and what do you hope the students really gain from that experience? Uh, yeah, we call it shadow programming program because the kids aren't old enough to, to do anything really useful, you know, when they're in high school. So, you know, it's really not an internship. So that the, the high school program we have is shadowing. And you got to understand my, my dad was an English professor. My mom was a geneticist. I didn't like English. So I thought I must be a geneticist wrong. You know, I, I should have been, you know, right going straight into engineering. So I, I had to divert into uh, biology for a year, you know, so I lost a year. That's okay. But what I'm trying to do for the kids is let them come and get a taste of everything. And I don't care if they love it or hate it. In fact, I've had two sisters come through. One of them ran away screaming and went into the winemaking business. And that's fine. You know, that's, that's better than getting an engineering degree and then regretting it. But her sister is now a degreed engineer. You wow. know, and they both went through the same program where they spent three days at my shop working with mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, software engineers, welding engineers, and material scientists. And then at the end of those three days, they need to come back and tell me who had the cool job. And the answer may be none of the above. Hmm. Yeah, maybe the cool yeah. job is uh, is winemaking, which we need, the, need those people too. Sorry, Dr. Lewis, I cut you off. Go ahead. Uh, no, uh, more students really need to do that sort of thing. Uh, we get um, in uh, juniors uh, in the material science program who suddenly decide they really don't like material science. They want to go off and do uh, management consulting. We had went, one went to uh, Harvard Law School. One want, wanted to be uh, a uh, videographer. And you know, really hate to see that happen. They're, um, after three years of college, suddenly they want to take a 90-degree turn and go off. So, you know, the, the more, Dan, the more of that you can do, the better. Yeah, sometimes good kids go bad, Peter. Yeah. <laughs> No, man, that, that one kid that uh, went to Harvard Business School, man, I, I thought maybe I should commit Harry Carey on that. <laughs> so one of the things that uh, through this hands-on hands -on education, you're hoping to at least impart in, in, in some level, right, is, is the understanding of specifications and constraints. So kind of explain what you're hoping students learn about those two things and, and how that hands-on experience really helps them gain that, that education. Yeah, right. So, so in college, most of the courses uh, are just an endless array of possibilities. And so uh, typically students are really not taught much at all about um, industry practices and industry standard procedures. Um, every company, every major company has vast sets of uh, standards by which they purchase materials. And so in, in uh, outside of academia, you know, whenever materials are bought and sold, there's just a vast array of specifications about all that regarding the strength and the purity and whatnot, uh, endless array of uh, material properties. 
And so we really have to teach them quite a lot about that. And it doesn't happen in those other classes. So it tends to be uh, as part of the senior projects, capstone projects. And this project was a great example, you know, because, uh, you know, we looked through the literature. We found, I think you found the beta phase titanium alloys might be the best for coating. And, and so we thought we were off to the races until we tried to secure some of these alloys. And they exist in textbooks, but uh, some of them don't exist in the real world. Yeah, if you're a giant corporation and uh, need to buy a 20,000-pound ingot of this stuff, yes, yes, they can go off and crank up the mill and melt it and cast it and roll it for you. On the other hand, if it we're just a uh, small academic uh, program and only need like 10 pounds, uh, you just can't get it. Just not I thought available. that was a great lesson for the kids, though, because, you know, then they, they saw you can't just pick anything you want off, out of uh, off the periodic tables. You know, some some things, you know, don't exist in the in the real world. Yeah, that does feel like a, a really good practical lesson. Um, just kind of once again, ex- explaining a little bit more about what you do and how you're preparing students for that real world experience and uh, to take that leap out of academia and into the real world. And uh, Dr. Lois, you kind of seem like a. Uh, like a a maverick in the academia world since uh, since you provide students with so much of that hands-on experience uh it, it's it's just so counter from a lot of people's uh, university experience and what what the education i think that they get and so this is a this has been a really fascinating conversation just learning a little bit more about what you do yeah so i'm the only guy in the uh, on the faculty in material science with the job title you know professor in the practice and so this is um my job is to teach uh, students how we practice engineering you know not just paper paper and pencil and textbook stuff dan any uh, final final thoughts here as we start to wrap this episode up uh, any final thoughts just about the work that you do with dr los and the, the work that he does at the university and the, the value of it i guess i want to do a shout out to everybody else in industry uh, who does not realize what a resource they're wasting you know every college has uh, a bunch of seniors every year that need senior projects and industry has a whole lot of problems they want solved. And if we put the two together, you know, there's some synergy. And the only reason I was even aware of this is, is because I was, uh, you know, friends with Dr. Los. But uh, I recommend everyone out there contact their local college and then see if they can sponsor a project. Worst case scenario, you're going to help a bunch of kids. That's great. And invest in the next generation of engineers, which is uh, a valuable thing as well, as you want to see people come behind you and continue the work that you've been doing. Excellent. Well, uh, guys, this has been an absolute pleasure. So, Dr. Lois, thank you so much for joining us here on this episode of the Roboticist Chronicles with Dan Alford and our specialties, and uh, best of luck moving forward. So thank you once again for, uh, for joining us for this episode. Hey, I'm glad to be here. Thanks. Excellent. And, Dan, thanks for being here as well. Always good to talk to you, sir. It was fascinating. I appreciate your time. And everybody, thank you for tuning into this episode of the Roboticist Chronicles. If you liked it, make sure you subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or just bookmark the website that you're listening to this on and make sure you come back for uh, for future episodes. You can also go back and listen to previous episodes of the show as well. We have a lot of fascinating stuff in there, a lot of fascinating conversations. Uh, if you want to hear Dan's answer to uh, should robots be taxed, go back and listen to that in the podcast. So uh, make sure you go back and check out those episodes as well. We'll be back soon with more episodes of the Roboticist Chronicles, but until then, I've been your host today, Tyler Kern. Thanks for listening.